0: you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate
1: $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps.
2: It is time for the Academy Awards, so let's meet the people who star in the year's best movies. I didn't want to feel comfortable
0: really they are somewhat the most unlikely feminists that you will find
3: why you are making
2: this movie and why
3: you called me to play
2: you
1: somewhere along the line I had defined myself as a person who was inconsistent and couldn't sing live
2: Cynthia Erivo Charlize Theron Antonio Banderas and Renee Zellweger are with us plus many of the filmmakers behind this year's best picture nominees including Little Women's Greta Gerwig and Jojo Rabbit's Taika Waititi I want to have
4: pleased every single person with this film it would not be this film and it would not be one of my films
5: that's right <laughs> you, you you picked up all the cards i put down
2: and will parasite make academy awards history it's the frame oscar special from kpcc in los angeles i'm john horn we'll be right back We are ready. Let's do it. Welcome to The Frame Oscar special from KPCC in Los Angeles.
7: Good evening and welcome to the one millionth Academy
2: Award. And the Oscar goes to...
7: And the Oscar goes to...
2: And the Oscar goes to...
7: If, by the way, I forget anybody, I'm going to find you later. I'm going to give you all a
8: massive snog. Everybody who who bought a ticket, who told somebody to buy a ticket, thank you. I, I love you.
6: If I may be so honored to
0: have all the female nominees in every category stand with me in this room tonight. The actors, Merrill, if you do it, everybody else will, come on. The
9: filmmakers.
2: To that I say, all right, all right, all right. I'm John Horn, host of The Frame, and joining me is Jacqueline Coley, editor at Rotten Tomatoes. Jacqueline, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, John. So I know we're only a couple seconds in. Certified Fresh so far?
6: Uh, I think you're doing great. You're Certified Fresh. And honestly, I would say all of the Best Picture nominees this year are also pretty awesome. It's probably the highest average on the tomato meter of Best Picture nominees we've had in a while. So I'm excited to talk about these films.
2: So let's start with probably the top story, I think, of this year's Oscar race. 20 acting nominees, one person of color, Cynthia Revo, who stars as Harriet Tubman in Harriet.
6: Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I was extremely disappointed when I watched Issa Rae and John Cho read out the nominees a few weeks ago, um, but I wasn't surprised. I actually just wrote an article at Rotten Tomatoes discussing this. When you talk about the 92 years of the history of the Academy, there's only been 35 Black women nominated, and 21 of them have been for playing a slave, a maid, or a woman in abject poverty. It is an alarming and slightly depressing trend, I would say, in the Academy's tastes. Um, and when you have performances from Octavia Spencer and Luce, uh, Alfre Woodard and Clemency, J.Lo in four-inch heels, giving us all she could for Hustlers and Aquafina for the farewell. It's really alarming for you to say to yourself that. This is where we are at the State of the Academy. I'm going to hope that this year we can have Parasite as a moment. If it wins Best Picture, that we could say we're moving forward. But again, Cynthia being the only nominee, it's uh, it's
2: a bit depressing. Parasite, I think, has a legitimate chance to win the Best Picture Oscar. I think Bong Joon-ho, who directed and co-wrote it, could win director as well. If it wins the top prize, the first foreign language movie in Academy history To take that prize, that is important in its own right, regardless of the fact that none of its actors were nominated for performing in it.
6: Yeah, and it's also, again, a trend, unfortunately, with the Academy. There have been six previous Best Picture nominations from Asian cinema where none of the actors were honored with an acting nomination. And unfortunately, Parasite kept with that trend this year. However, um, we keep a track uh, at our awards leaderboard on RottenTomatoes.com of all of the wins of all of the films that are in the conversation. And Parasite has dominated with over 125 wins. And to give you sort of a relative Idea. The next wins is at 71. So Parasite has been dominating with critics groups and with these various guilds. So it's poised to maybe take home the top prize, but it really depends on the Academy's taste and what those 9000 members feel about the film.
2: Later in the show, we're going to talk about the Best Picture race. We're also going to hear from some of the directors of some of the Best Picture nominees, including Greta Gerwig, who made Little Women was not nominated for Best Director, Sam Mendes from 1917, and Bong Joon-ho from Parasite.
6: But we'll start this Oscar party with some leading actresses. Three of the five nominees in this category had the particular challenge of playing real people on screen. Cynthia Erivo, Charlize Theron, and Renee Zellweger, who plays Judy Garland in Judy. Ladies
5: and gentlemen, I can't.
1: Tonight, no, 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 no.
7: What, what do you mean you can't? There's an audience out there waiting to hear you sing.
1: My mouth. Dry. And, and it, it could and fall Listen to
7: me. I can't. You'll
1: be fine. Now,.: Judy takes
2: place in the late 1960s. Judy Garland's career is floundering. She's struggling with sobriety. She goes to England to perform at a London nightclub. And Jacqueline, one thing that surprised me was that Renee Zellweger wasn't convinced that she could actually pull off this part.
6: Which I think is so crazy. That's Texas girls for you. As a Texas girl, I can say we're like deprecating on our talent and always like underestimating ourselves. But she absolutely murdered this role. I remember I woke up bright and early at the Telluride Film Festival to watch her sort of embody Judy Garland for this role. And it was so, I would say, mesmerizing.
1: You made me love you. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. You made me love you. And all the time Somewhere along the line, I had decided, you, you know, I defined myself as a person who was inconsistent and couldn't sing live. And I was a person who, was, um, who had a tiny voice and shouldn't try to sing big belter songs and who would never perform live in front of living human beings because that would be a terrible idea but I just sort of trusted the process and just started working and started working with local coaches who uh, had different techniques and who taught me different things. You know, it began with contorting my body to try and, you know, somehow make that sound come out as terrible as it might've been.
2: There was a fascinating review that we found of the original concerts in 1968 in the observer. Mm-hmm. And this is what the critics said in part, she doesn't really give a concert. She conducts a seance. Hmm. She evokes pity and sorrow like no other superstar.
1: I mean, this is her bliss. We're talking about performance and connecting with audiences, and obviously it's her gift, and it's also what she relies on for her freedom and financial stability and her ability to take care of herself. She was in debt, and she didn't have a home, a place to live. Um, she was having difficulty finding work in the United States because her reputation was not one of, um, of great reliability. And then there's this addiction. Um, the chaos, I suppose, is just, you know, what you see on the outside is, is usually a manifestation of what's on the inside. And all of those things, one of those things that she was experiencing at the time would have been enough to, uh, to break a person, and I think that that's what's so interesting about talking about this time in her life. Um, it's not—I don't—I don't think that there's any shame in it. I think that it just really highlights how exceptional she was that she was able to overcome all of this mess uh, and still perform.
2: That was Renee Zellweger, nominated for her work in Judy. You're listening to The Frame Oscar Special. I'm John Horn, host of The Frame on KPCC in Los Angeles. And I'm here with Jacqueline Coley, editor at Rotten Tomatoes. Let's now turn to Charlize Theron.
6: Yeah, in Bombshell, which she also produced, uh, Theron plays former Fox News anchor Megan Kelly, who partners with other women at that network to take down the founder, Roger Ailes.
0: It's like we're telling women, go on, speak up for yourself, just know The entire network is with Roger. No one will believe you. They'll call you a liar. Oh, and as for your career, you want assignments and airtime? Go ahead, call the paranoid man who decides your salary a pervert and do that on a anonymous hotline he controls. On a phone, he has a contractual right to record. Jesus Christ, do you think women are
6: idiots? Honestly, I was completely mesmerized by Bombshell. I was actually one of the biggest fans of the movie. It was kind of a bit critically divisive. I think not a lot of people liked giving some humanity to Megyn Kelly, but I personally found Charlize's performance to be incredible and just the kind of, hate to say it, but the balls it took for her to take on
2: that role, to
6: produce it herself, and to say that she wanted to tell this Me
2: Too story. I did talk with Charlize Theron, and she told me why she wanted to make the film and why it was important to make it now.
0: The script was written pre Times Up, pre Harvey Weinstein. There wasn't any of what is out there right now in our in our culture as far as this conversation. It's it felt somewhat like a story in its own silo, um, but but people were definitely kind of whispering about a lot of uh, what was about to come out. And so you could feel it. You could feel there was like this kind of like under, like this bubbling that was happening and the pot was about to boil over. We definitely felt that. And so when we read the script, we were aware a little bit of, I mean, we could, nobody could predict how big all of this would be, but we were aware that there was something timely about this script.
2: How would you describe what this movie is about?
0: It, it's a movie about a, a group of very unlikely women... <laughs> Who if you were, you know, writing a fictional story, you would not necessarily cast as your central characters to tell a story of taking down the biggest media mogul. Um,
2: and yet they did. Why were they unlikely, do you think?
0: Well, because I think a lot of them, uh, you know, Gretchen and and Megan had made some comments prior to all of this about sexual harassment that I found not necessarily helpful to the cause of a lot of, you know, women who are experiencing sexual harassment. I think there there is a a conservative view on sexual harassment as how do you believe women, how do you know it's true? How um, the emphasis is always on doubting the victim, doubting the woman. And I just thought it was interesting that they had had those views before in the past uh, about sexual harassment. Megan Kelly famously um, refuses to be called a feminist. You know, they are somewhat the most unlikely feminist that you will find.
2: That was Charlize Theron. She's nominated for her lead role in Bombshell. This is the Frame Oscar special from KPCC in Los Angeles. The other nominated lead actress playing a real person on screen is Cynthia Erivo. She plays Harriet Tubman in Harriet.
3: Rescuing slaves requires skill and careful planning. It requires reading, Harriet. Can you read a
7: sign or a map? Can you read it all? I put my attention on trying to hear God's voice more clearly. Do you
3: know what would happen if you got caught? They would torture you until you pointed them right to this office. You got lucky, Harriet. And there's nothing more you can do. Don't you tell me what I can't do.
6: Cynthia is actually a double Oscar nominee with also for Best Original Song for the song Stand Up, which she co-wrote for Harriet. And I honestly would be happy to see if she uh, won for that one. She'd be the youngest EGOT winner ever.
2: EGOT, of course, is Emmy, Grammy, Oscar. Tony, Here is some of my conversation with Cynthia Revo recorded around the time that Harriet came out.
7: The most important thing I, for me was really about trying to to bring her to life you know people don't know that she had emotions and she had feelings and she could get angry and she could you know be joyous and heartbroken all of those things that we as humans experience and so i i, I wanted to be as fully emotionally available as i possibly could
2: Not every actor gets to co write his or her theme song, but Cynthia, (laughs) you wrote a song called Stand Up with Joshua Campbell. I've
7: been walking with my face turned to the sun. Weight on my shoulders. I mean. Music is, I, I like to think, is my second language, so I, I use it uh, a lot to, to communicate, to tell stories. I write my own music, so it means I can—I get to speak the things I pro- probably couldn't speak out loud uh, through music. And so to get the chance to, I guess, use my voice for her, uh, move myself out the way and find a voice that felt right for, for Harriet to using the purest sense for communication was really special Uh, and where we were it just felt like it was um, a little bit like hallowed ground we were were on a plantation so to be able to sing those spirituals uh, for people to to call to people felt really um, empowering.
2: Cynthia Rebo has two Oscar nominations for her work in Harriet, Lead Actress, and Best Song. This is The Frame Oscar special. I'm John Horn, host of The Frame, on KPCC in Los Angeles, and I'm joined in studio by Jacqueline Coley, editor at Rotten Tomatoes. Jacqueline, what do you think of Jojo Rabbit, the World War II satire from Taika Waititi?
6: I loved this movie i know it is a divisive film and not everyone got its humor but put me in the camp of mel brooks who made the producers and a whole bunch of other people in hollywood and a lot of people in the academy i might add who love this
2: film. I think this is a really remarkable film. I also think even though it's set in the 1940s, it's really topical in terms of what it has to say about how hate is taught and how we marginalize other people. Jojo Rabbit has six nominations, including Best Picture and Best Costume Design by Mayas Rubeo. The Frame contributor, Andrea Gutierrez, has this story about the woman behind the costumes in Jojo Rabbit.
10: This is the Mecca of costumes in America. Maes Rubeo is giving me a
11: tour of Western Costume, a massive costume house in North Hollywood.
10: Hello, Jack. How are you? you? Good, Good. thank you. Thank you. The best tailor in the whole town. Rubeo
11: is a costume designer. And this is not a store, it's an archive. Western Costume opened more than 100 years ago, and it's been making, renting out, and cataloging costumes ever since.
10: I mean, look at this. This one, look at the tag. It's very old. What so, does it say on the top? Well, no, this is when they marked it, but this come a lot earlier. 1939, yeah, maybe. probably.
11: This is where Rubeo did a lot of research for Jojo Rabbit.
10: But now they call me a scared rabbit.
4: Let them say whatever they want. People used to say a lot of nasty things about me. Oh, this guy's a lunatic. Oh, this
11: is Rubeo's second film with writer and director Taika Waititi. The look of the film was key in establishing a child's viewpoint. Rubeo worked with Waititi, the production designer, and the director of photography to develop the film's vivid color palette, especially when it comes to JoJo's mother, Rosie, played by Scarlett Johansson.
10: The intention of uh, her colors were to show uh, how a child looks at his mother.
11: It was Rubeo's love and extensive knowledge of textiles that really put her in the headspace of the characters.
10: Every character should have a piece that would mean so much to them. For Rosie, what was the piece that meant the most to her? I think that green sweater.
11: Rosie's sweater looks cozy, lived in. It's got a bold zigzag pattern in brown and blue against a mint green background. Wearing it, Rosie stands in stark contrast to Jojo in his khaki uniform of his fictionalized Nazi youth group.
10: I wanted to think that she... Got that sweater because uh, Sonia Delaunay had uh, the exhibit and, and said, oh, look, you should wear this.
11: There's no bigger inspiration for Rosie's style than the Ukrainian-French artist Sonia Delaunay. Her bold textile designs of the early 20th century might have been known to an artist type like Rosie. <laughs> Rubeo mapped out an entire backstory for Rosie. She was an actress in an important theater company, her friends were all artists, and she liked to go dancing in her distinctive two toned shoes.
10: Until the day before shooting, the first time the shoes, we were undecided and decisive of like, what do we do? Then take us said, that's it, we're going for the red shoes.
11: Rubeo collects textiles wherever she travels. It's that knowledge that gave her the tools to know which pieces we to rent and here. which to make.
10: This is the most creative uh, part of. Uh, Western costume. This is where all these ladies, like Nancy and uh, all these uh, Jose, they all have been in Western costume for such a long time.
11: This sensibility of constructing and deconstructing is something Rubeo has cultivated since she was a child growing up in Mexico City.
10: I think I was about five. You know, when we were like playgrounds, uh, we were a group of uh, little girls and we would play anything, but I always wanted to say yes, but First, we're going to dress up for that. No, we don't have time for that. Let's just play. No, we have to get into the costumes.
11: Maez Castillero, as she was then known, was only 20 when she moved to Los Angeles in the early 80s. She ended up in Italy because of Bruno Rubello, her husband and an accomplished production designer himself, who passed away in 2011, and would no doubt revel in her current success.
10: He'll be organizing parties and make it, you know, all kinds of... uh, see wonderful things to celebrate. He will be very proud. Yeah,
11: proud of her Academy Award nomination for the Frame. I'm Andrea Gutierrez.
2: Coming up on the Frame Oscar special: nominated leading men Antonio Banderas and Adam Driver, plus how the composer for Joker channeled the addled mind of the Joaquin Phoenix character in the film score. Stick around. We'll be right back.
11: Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water deal Maker, wherever you get podcasts.
2: Welcome back to The Frame Oscar special from KPCC in Los Angeles. I'm John Horn, the host of The Frame, and I'm joined in studio by Jacqueline Coley, editor at Rotten Tomatoes.
0: And now, please welcome Tina Fey, Maya Rudolph, and Amy Poe.
6: Okay, John, let's pause for a second and talk about the telecast itself. For the second year in a row, the Oscars will be hostless.
1: We are not your hosts, but we're going to stand here a little too long so that the people who get USA today tomorrow will think that we hosted
6: it. What do you make of the new trend of award ceremonies without a host?
2: If they could only shorten them to under 16 hours or 15, whatever they came in last year, that would be great. I would say it worked last year. They just got to move this sucker along, though. I mean, they've tried different things, moving some categories to televised uh, commercial breaks. That didn't go over very well.
1: We won't be doing awards during the commercials, but we will be presenting commercials during the awards.
2: I'd say it's still kind of dull. I just wanted to move along faster.
6: I mean, I think last year, I think they were not that far over, but it's still it's a three hour award show and nobody there is actually happy to be there unless they're going to win. So I don't think it's going to be a fun time for most folks. I don't know how you make these award shows any more entertaining. I think the last one I really, really, really enjoyed was the Ellen and then before that the Hugh Jackman.
2: Yeah. And the problem for the Oscars, unlike the Grammys, where you can have show stopping musical numbers. You can't do an Oscar ceremony where he's like, here's how a cinematographer works or here's the art of visual effects. It's just never going to be as interesting as performance might be in the Grammy ceremony. I, You know, every ceremony comes down to the quality of the speeches. The speeches are always so bad.
6: They should all get Brad Pitt's uh, speechwriter because he's been doing it pretty well this season um, from Quentin Tarantino's feet to being a single dad and Tinder. Everyone should hire whoever he hired.
2: Okay, let's look at some of the male acting races. We're going to start with a couple of actors who are nominated for movies they made with longtime collaborators. I'm talking about Antonio Banderas and Pedro Omeldovar for Pain and Glory, and Adam Driver and Noah Baumbach for Marriage Story.
6: Can I just say, if there was any justice in this world, I would rather see either one of these two win on Oscar night. I loved both of these performances immensely. And I, I think they're both better, more actorly performances. But I think uh, I, I don't think the Oscar voters are going to go with me. Um, they're probably going to definitely go with Joaquin. But I loved both of these, as particularly Antonio. When I saw that at Cannes, where he won also Best Actor, I thought he was a shoo-in for the Oscar.
3: 32 años me ha costado reconciliarme con esta película. Si no escribes ni ruedas, ¿qué vas a hacer?
2: Vivir, supongo. When I spoke with Banderas about Pain and Glory, we actually started by talking about how he and Almodovar first met in the 1980s.
3: I was at the National Theatre. I was, uh, I think I was 19 years old. Um, Pedro, I think, is nine years older than me. But I was with a group of actors outside of the theatre in a coffee shop called Café Gijón. And this guy came, you know, with a... I, I always remember that he came with a red briefcase. And he, you know, he took over the table, you know, in a kind of a monologue <laughs> he that was very funny I don't remember what he was talking about but it was I remember that it was funny it was fast it was very ingenious you know in every comment that he made and by the time that he was leaving he just looked at me and he didn't know me and he says you should make movies because you got a very romantic face and and he left and I said sure yeah, whatever and so I asked who is this guy and then some very you know bright mind at the moment said his name is Pedro Almodovar and he just made a movie he will never do another one.
2: <laughs> That's true. He won't do another one. He'll do another dozen or more. He did another 21. 20- one of the major themes of this movie is reconciliation Correct. and about trying to atone for mistakes, patching up differences, forgiveness. And it's a story about an actor and a filmmaker in the film who are reconciling. And it's also about a filmmaker, Pedro Maldivar, and an actor, Antonio Banderas, reconciling. At what point are you trying to figure out if you're making a movie or telling your own life story? Or you actually doing the same?
3: it's a very thin line. It's very difficult to know. And very special, especially with Pedro Almodovar, because
2: Pedro breathes cinema, eats cinema. Everything is cinema. How much of his life is in this film, and where was he in his professional and personal life when he made Pain and Glory? There is one side of him in the movie
3: that is very clear, which is physically Pedro has suffered. And there is a beautiful moment in the movie that almost pass very fast, but it's very beautiful. It's when he's just about to be in uh, surgery, and the doctor comes to sal- salute him, and he says, "So how are you?" And he said to the doctor, "I cannot die here. You know, I am writing again." <laughs> you know? And so the doctor says, "Oh, great! So what are you doing? A comedy or a tragedy?" He says, "Life. I'm doing something about life." Boom, and he lose consciousness. So in a way, he's just sending a message that I want to live.
2: Antonio Banderas is nominated for his work in Pain and Glory. That film is also nominated in the newly renamed category of Best International Feature. Spoiler, Parasite's going to win. This is The Frame Oscar special from KPCC in Los Angeles. I'm John Horn, the host of The Frame.
6: And I'm Jacqueline Coley, an editor at Rotten Tomatoes. Adam Driver and Noah Baumbach have made four movies together. Their latest one, Marriage Story, has six Oscar nominations, including one for Driver. I honestly could not believe how incredible Adam Driver was in this film. Um, As a child of divorce, personally, this film hit me in places that I didn't think I was ready for when I first saw it.
2: As a married man, it hit me in places I really wasn't ready for. It's a difficult movie to watch. I
12: maybe like my. But I am not like my mother. You are. And you're like my father. You're also like my mother. You're all the bad things about all of these people.
2: I spoke with Adam Driver about his collaborations with directors that he's worked with multiple times, including Noah Baumbach. It was recorded in front of a live audience at the Telluride Film Festival, where Marriage Story premiered.
12: There's just something that we, our way of working, our work ethic is... Uh, similar, they, in that they don't take it for granted that we're making a, a movie. It, it, it's, it has the potential to reach a place that is far away and either give language to a culture that's completely different than ours, and someone's paying a lot of money for us to be here right now, for um uh, this amount of time to do this thing that will last forever and you know we've labeled the feeling and how powerful that is you know why take that for granted why show up and kind of wing it you know or um not consider what it is you're saying and that no detail is too small no obviously there's traps in all of that that you can get so worked up in details that you're, you're trying to control everything and and don't leave room for um, you know, something that's more abstract. But with those people, uh, they're brilliant writers and create a set, an environment on set where you're free to, you know, get all those things that you hope from, from people, you're free to get it wrong and you're free to explore.
2: You were recently doing Burn This and I'm wondering when you're doing a play and then going into film or television, what are the things that you... Might miss, but retain as an actor who's doing a show in front of a different audience every night. When you're not able to replicate that on a film set, yeah, it's a totally
12: different thing. It's um, I, I, working with Noah, for example. He likes to do a lot of takes, and that actually feels more familiar to working on a play because you know it, the lines are the lines. There's no there's no improv. This is what it is. You know, we're blocking it out, but the intention can be a million different things. And he structured the day um smartly so we have enough time to explore all the possibilities of what it could be not just arbitrarily but uh, i mean sometimes and then and then sometimes you have to rebel against him and then uh and just do it the way you want to do it just to shock yourself and shock the system and then maybe come up with something better but you know it's like a, rehe- a whole run of a rehearsal you know, truncated into a day you know which is i, I think rare with someone
2: like noah That was Adam Driver. He's nominated for lead actor. It's the Frame Oscar special from KPCC in Los Angeles. I'm John Horn here with Jacqueline Coley, editor at Rotten Tomatoes.
6: So, John, the man that many Oscar predictors believe will win this category is Joaquin Phoenix for his role in Joker. You
3: think men like Thomas Wayne ever think what it's like to be someone like me? To be somebody but themselves, they don't. They think that we'll just sit there and take it like good little boys.
2: So Joker, I think unbelievably, has the most nominations of any film with 11, including for its director, Todd Phillips. But it's a very divisive movie. What's your take?
6: I think that Joker is the most 2019 movie that we could ever make. It is a movie centered in on a white man who feels that he's being sort of marginalized and erased in society. And he's lashing out at that um, in a sea of faces that do not look like him. I mean, that is simply the story of Joker. Both the box office, the critical reception and everything about it simply states this is a movie of our time. Whether some people didn't like it or not. You cannot deny that it hit in on something that a lot of people resonated with.
2: Among the nominations for Joker's one for its score is by composer Hildur Guðnadóttir. She's only the ninth woman nominated in the music scoring category. And she told The Frame's Jonathan Shiflett how she went about making the music for director Todd Phillips.
13: I experience music very physically. As I read the script, I, I have a kind of physical reaction to the story, and it was kind of very focused on the the chest area and the and the hand movements. And then um, they used a lot of the music whilst they were shooting, and it was just there was one scene in particular that was just incredible to see how Joaquim, without us talking about it at all, like I had no dialogue with him about it, but he did exactly the same movements that I was feeling as I, I, you know, wrote, wrote the original themes. It was just such a magical process. I thought it was really important to kind of feel like we were like in his head and it's really close to him. It's all kind of his inner landscape, basically, the music. It doesn't really underscore much, but it's just like really kind of present as his inner character. And that's kind of what I was trying to do with the um, instrumentation of like in the beginning of of the film. It's almost like you're listening just to one instrument playing. But at the same time, there's this kind of huge energy. Like, there's actually like a hundred people playing these like some of these melodies. But you can almost not hear them. They're almost like this kind of hidden energy. That's like his aggression and the, the feeling of this kind of underlying something is about to kind of burst from out of the, <laughs> from out of the shadows. And just like, it was hard to have like a hundred people like not just playing on full blast all the, all the time because you're like, whoa. So it was a bit of a constraint for people basically not to play and not to make any sound. So it was like really interesting energy in the room. The themes kind of, you know, stay largely the, the same, but the orchestration and the, you know, and the size and the scope and the kind of heaviness of the of the music just kind of gets larger as it's kind of, you know, just the... Um, yeah, getting more frustrated and more (laughs) aggressive. And then in the end, he just, like, explodes.
2: That was Hildur Gunadotter. She composed the score for Joker. You're listening to The Frame Oscar Special. I'm John Horn host of The Frame from KPCC in Los Angeles.
6: And I'm Jacqueline Coley, editor at Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Next up, we can talk about a film with three Oscar nominations, including Best Adapted Screenplay and the two performances from Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins. Two Popes. What do you think of Two Popes, John?
2: So Netflix has a couple of movies in the Oscar race. This is the one that's not getting a lot of talk. The Irishman is, I actually think this is a better movie. I'm sorry, but I feel that way. I thought it was really well-directed by Fernando Marias, and I thought it was really well-acted. I mean, I love this movie, and I was a little bit surprised it didn't get more Oscar attention.
6: You know, I think I'm one of the reasons for that. I also saw this film at the Telluride Film Festival. I enjoyed it. I thought it was incredible and I loved the actually performances, but I thought it was going to get lost in the conversation. So I was actually surprised, um, even though I didn't predict it would happen, that it got the three nominations that it did. But I was still very happy for it, especially for the screenplay, which I think it was from a play. It was adapted from a play originally. And that is what I love about it. It felt like movie theater in like the best way, shape or form. I think um, Anthony McCarty and should honestly be further in the conversation this year for this screenplay. Unfortunately, he's going up against two powerhouses in Jojo Rabbit and Little Women.
2: I talked with Anthony McCartan about the two popes. Here's what he had to say.
14: This whole thing started with me. I was in Rome and uh, my beloved cousin died. And my sister said, I don't know if you're anywhere near a church or a chapel, but could you go and light a candle for her? And I thought, I'll go to the Vatican. So I went to the Vatican and there was a lot of security and I went into St. Peter's Square and it was an open-air mass by Pope Francis. And he was up on the super screen. And the rock star quality of this guy and um, was palpable. And I was with my girlfriend, Eva. Her father had happened to work under... Pope Benedict when he was Archbishop in Munich. And so she knew quite a bit about Benedict and I knew there were two popes coexisting. Um, and I said to her, Where, so there's Francis, where's Benedict? And she said, oh, he's sequestered in a convent um, way back and behind the Vatican wall. I started to think, hang on a minute, 700 years since this happened the last time, what therefore would have made the most traditional pope of the modern era do the most untraditional thing you could imagine and retire. And I thought there must be a story here.
9: Your style and your methods are entirely different to mine. I don't agree with any, about well, most of the things you say think or do, but uh, for some strange reason, now I can see a, a necessity for Bergoglio. But I can't do this without knowing that the is so at least a possibility that you might be
14: chosen? No. It could never be me. So it's a statement rebuttal. Rebuttal statement. It's a tennis match between the two. And I'm weaving the known statements of these two people together. And I'm adding touches of humanizing detail, which are all true.
2: Anthony McCartan is nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for The Two Popes. Coming up on the Frame Oscar special, we get into the best picture race. We hear from the director of Parasite, Bong Joon-ho, Greta Gerwig, who made Little Women, Taika Waititi from Jojo Rabbit, and Sam Mendes from 1917. Plus, how Quentin Tarantino turned present-day Hollywood back in time. It's the Frame Oscar special from KPCC in Los Angeles. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Frame Oscar special. Thanks for joining us. I'm John Horn, host of The Frame from KPCC in Los Angeles.
6: And I'm Jacqueline Coley, an editor for Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, John, let's talk the big one, Best Picture.
2: The nominated films for Best Picture are Ford vs. Ferrari, Jojo Rabbit, The Irishman, 1917, Little Women, Parasite, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Joker, and Marriage Story.
6: So we've got nine nominees. The Academy could have chosen up to 10. Um, And there's one film in our Best Picture nominees that's unlike any of the others, and that's Little Women. It's the only nominee directed by a woman and the only one fronted entirely by women. The writer-director is Greta Gerwig.
2: She loves Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. In fact, she was hired to write the screenplay for which she's nominated for Adapted Screenplay before she got the gig to direct the film. But it was really after her success with Lady Bird, which was nominated for Best Picture and which she was nominated for directing, not this time around, that Sony asked her to direct Little Women.
5: Little Women has been a book that I have loved my whole life in a very deep way, to the point where my memories and the memories of the March sisters were intertwined in that way that I think books of your youth can mean something even beyond being books, because... They they become part of your family. I think that's that's the magic of um, reading when you're a child, is that the distinction between fiction and reality is thin for you, or it was for me anyway. Um, but I hadn't read it since I was about 14 or 15, and then I read it in my early 30s, I think when I turned 30. And I um, all this stuff came out at me in the book that it had not when I was a child.
6: John, it seems to me that the big test of the Academy's efforts to diversify its membership hinges on this next film, Parasite. The movie has six nominations, and it's a near lock to win international feature. But if it takes home Best Picture too, then it could tell us something.
2: It could tell us that for the first time, the Academy picks a foreign language movie as its Best Picture. And I think that would represent kind of the diversifying of the membership in terms of beyond North American borders. But also, Parasite is a daring film. It is challenging in terms of its narrative structure. It has a very gothic ending. But it is a movie that I think plays a little younger. The question will be, if all of the younger members of the Academy get behind it, that's its path to win Best Picture.
6: I mean, I agree that it's not necessarily for sure that everybody who is one of these new members is going to get behind Parasite. But the one thing I will and can tell you, Bong Joon-ho has been essentially a rock star in every single room that he's walked into since the film premiered.
2: I actually met with Bong Joon-ho and his interpreter, the Telluride Film Festival, where Parasite had its North American debut.
4: Yeah, someone said that this says- is Line
2: for Parasite. Yeah.
4: My movie is crazy. <laughs> Look at that. I'm
2: shouting to the people. our movie is very boring, so please <laughs> don't waste your time. And we talked as he was watching filmgoers filing in to see the movie. When I think about Parasite, I think about the host, I think about Snowpiercer, I think about Oakja. There are so many fantastical elements to all of those films, and they're difficult to categorize, and yet they all seem to be about real world issues. They can be about consumption, they can be about class struggle, they can be about families. Do you find, as a storyteller, that sometimes the more extreme a story becomes, the more real it can play? So it's not as if
1: I intend to make a particularly political film with propaganda. Um, my effort is always to delve into the really mundane, small, daily issues that surround me. But once I delve into those issues, I find myself ending up in a dark cave of capitalism. And so it doesn't happen because I want it to, but I just end up dealing with those issues. My,
4: my goal is always making funny movies.
2: <laughs> You're listening to the Frame Oscar Special from KPCC in Los Angeles. I'm John Horn, the host of the Frame,
6: and I'm Jacqueline Coley, an editor at Rotten
2: Tomatoes. I think it is really coming down to Parasite in 1917. 1917 with Roger Deakins' kind of single take cinematography is an achievement in film production. The question is, you know, is 1917 about something bigger than what the story is about? I think Parasite has that in its favor. How do you think people react to 1917 as the craft of the film and then about what it has to say in a broader context?
6: I mean, I think the technical achievement is what most people sort of like latch onto. I remember the marriage between the director, the cinematographer, visual effects, and the actors. This was seamless. They had to rehearse it like theater. And I think people are going to resonate with that more maybe than what the film has to say. I think the message of the film, if we were going to say one, and it's kind of hard to even look at it, is the idea of um, continuing a futile journey to sort of journey against all the odds because you feel this need to carry on a message.
2: I talked with Sam Mendes, the director of the film, who also won the DGA Prize for directing this year, and Roger Deakins, who I think is going to win the cinematography oscar about their collaboration
14: the key is that you don't want to feel as an audience manipulated so and that that is tricky because you you are aware that this is a real historic event and that there's a certain amount of respect that needs to be paid for the people who live through it and it's not an entertainment but at the same time you want people to fear what the characters are fearing and terror and adrenaline is exactly what they live through. The one shot helps with that because I think you feel, in a weird way, pulled in, claustrophobic.
2: Roger, you're trying to make this immersive, and yet there are requirements for the story in terms of what have to be in the shots. And I'm thinking of animals, rats, birds. How much of that are you able to shoot practically so that the actors are reacting to what's around them? And how much, by necessity, do you have to add through visual effects toward the end well i mean
14: some of those elements are obviously cg yeah there's but a real baby i was just
2: gonna say the baby's real when you would think <laughs> oh well the baby's cg but there was one particular baby that sam had auditioned or whatever and that came on it was like the fourth one we shot i think yeah. and it was like
12: perfect, yeah. every, was
2: take, perfect. every take every take <laughs> we've talked about 1917 we've talked about parasite I'm going to say if I were voting, I would vote for Jojo Rabbit for Best Picture.
6: Yeah, I would definitely vote for Jojo Rabbit. I absolutely think that it's the one, too, that I think if you look back later, we will say, okay, this was the message we wanted to send in 2019. Nazis are bad. Kids are good. And we all need to have a laugh.
2: And let's talk about Degree of Difficulty. This is a movie that if you get it wrong... It is springtime for Hitler. <laughs> yes. And it isn't. It is a movie that is thoughtful. It is a movie that is sweet. It is a movie that is funny. It is a movie that is moving. And if you look at the math of it, that is almost impossible to pull off
6: I absolutely agree and uh, honestly it's to me the best part about it is Taika said he wanted to make a PG-13 film because he wanted kids to see this movie because he was disturbed that a lot of children I think he read a poll in the Guardian where the vast majority of millennials did not know what Auschwitz was or anything about the Holocaust so the fact that it's become this educational tool now where USC and the Shoah Center are going to use it as something to teach um, about uh, intolerance and hate and um, the legacy of this film is something that should be honored by the Academy. It's already being honored by folks in the education system.
2: Here's what Taika Waititi had to say about why he wanted to make this film. I always knew there were people who embraced the film and they would be racist. And it's either or. <laughs>
4: um, no, I mean, it's uh, in America, people see the word divisive. They see it as a, as a, as a, a very negative thing or polarizing. For the rest of us, feel feel like that's it's actually quite a worthwhile uh, thing to have, to have put upon whatever piece of art you're making. I know that if I wanted to have pleased every single person with this film, it would not be this film, and it would not be one of my films. It would be someone else's film, and it would be boring. But, yeah, no, I always knew that there would be... People who would not be in it, and fair enough. It's it is a hard subject matter to deal with, and especially if if it's something that's very close to you. I did read somewhere someone said something like Oh, I don't think we're ready for humour with the subject matter, which is insane to me. I mean, there was one movie in nineteen thirty nine which did it. The
2: Great Dictator?
4: Yeah. So it's Charlie not a Chandler. new it's not a new idea.
2: You're listening to The Frame Oscar special from KPCC in Los Angeles. I'm the host of The Frame, John Horn.
6: And I'm Jacqueline Coley, an editor for Rotten Tomatoes.
2: It is possible that there could be a lot of love for the Irishman or Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So Martin Scorsese's film about mobsters, Quentin Tarantino's movie about working in the film business... What do you think? Do they have a chance of picking up something outside of Brad Pitt?
6: I think Quentin Tarantino has more than a fighting chance on original screenplay. I think right now the safe money's on Parasite, but don't count out Quentin Tarantino's love within the Academy. Um, they're definitely going to get Brad Pitt, and I also think they're probably going to get production design. Uh, when you can boast that you shut down a freeway as part <laughs> of your production design that is literally part of their pitch when they did the bake-off, that's kind of hard to argue
2: against. The production design is pretty good. Frame contributor Tim Grieving drove around Hollywood with some key members of Tarantino's team to actually figure out how they transformed the city back to 1969.
8: I meet location manager Rick Schuler and production designer Barbara Ling at a very 2019 Starbucks in the corner of Sunset and Gower. We all hop in a car together, and they take me on a trip through Hollywood... Back in time,
9: Hollywood is a destination now, and it, and it's it. We wanted to create more than that. It's like you get here and you go, well, where is Hollywood? Well, it's kind of an idea? Um, and this movie was making it a place more so than anything else has done before. We'll
5: Right now, in front of the, what is now the Aquarius Theater, Rebirthed, uh, on Sunset Boulevard, we recreated at least one section of the building. This is where Hair premiered in uh, the 60s. We had painters doing this, and they told me, they said, you know, this has to be the most fun project because people stop all day long
8: and just scream up to them,
5: thank you for putting it back.
8: We drive down Sunset and stop in front of the famous Cinerama Dome. Barbara, were you surprised at how any of these places retained their 50-year-old uh, characteristics?
5: Uh, it was a huge to-do to turn back time. It's unfortunate that in L.A. we uh, tear down as much as, and as fast as we can of any of the old iconic uh, pieces. The few that we have left, like the Cinerama Dome, the very facade the marquee is still the original and the golf ball top but of course in that time frame there was nothing but parking lots on either side of it so you have you know we did um the premiere of Krakatoa here but you could only shoot tight in because you had of course this whole world around it now that uh Looks nothing like the 60s, but at least there's a little piece of something left. But that was rare.
8: Now we're in the touristy heart of Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard, tempted to go inside a famous restaurant for a midday martini. Musso and
9: Frank's uh, featured in a big way. Uh, In the movie, we repainted and did all kinds of things there. Um, The nice thing about that restaurant is that they've preserved pretty much the integrity of everything that's there, from the leather and the booths to all of that kind of stuff. So that was a wonderful gem to find. Over here, or in front of Barbara, at this hologram place here, which used to be the Pussycat Theater. And uh, we turned that back to the Pussycat. Put the whole facade back on there. People were like, whoa, what is this?
8: Shutting down Hollywood Boulevard for two days wasn't an easy feat. To convince the city officials and business owners, Rick Schuler knew he'd need to bring in a big gun, Quentin Tarantino.
9: He goes, well, Rick... Do you think you can get Hollywood Boulevard, like shut down nine blocks for two days in a row? And I'm thinking, I think I can get there 70% of of the way, but I think if you come and speak to your enthusiasm about having grown up in Hollywood, owning a theater in Hollywood, doing a movie about Hollywood, that that'll probably be a tipping point. And so he was willing to come. And then they had us leave the room, and a minute later I walked back in, and it was a unanimous vote. They were like, if he's going to show up, You know, we'll do it.
2: Jacqueline, we have come to the end of the show. The Oscars are Sunday night. How are we going to spend the night? Where do you watch?
6: Oh, where do I watch? This year, I'm actually going to be broadcasting live to the folks in London on Sky uh, TV. So I'm actually going to be on TV during the event, but I'll be watching it from there.
2: I'll wave to you from inside the theater. You have to look way up in the rafters, but I'll be in there. I'll wave. (laughs) The Frame Oscar special is edited and produced by Darby Maloney, along with producers Monica Bushman, Jonathan Shiflett, and Julia Paskin. Eduardo Perez is our engineer, and the show's senior producer is Oscar Garza. The Frame's opening theme music is by Taylor McFerrin. I'm John Horn from KPCC. I'm Jacqueline Coley from Rotten Tomatoes. You're listening to the Frame's Academy Awards special from Los Angeles. Thanks for listening we